Welcome to season one, episode one of What Are You So Effing Afraid Of? A podcast sponsored by the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond, where we share a multi-voice exploration of issues to promote longevity equity, disrupt commonly held beliefs about aging, and share some best kept secrets emerging from evidence-based gerontology. I'm your co-host, Ann Welliford, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Alexa Vanertrick and Nico Stankalescu. In season one, we are diving into commonly held beliefs, fears, and myths about aging, old age, and longevity. Myths about sex, myths that equate old age with sadness, irrelevance, isolation. So listen along and share with us. What are you so effing afraid of? On today's episode, we're joined by clinical geropsychologist, Dr. Andrew Heck, to explore, among many things, myths about mental health in later life. Dr. Heck is a nationally renowned clinical geropsychologist, educator, trainer, and administrator. He holds board certification through the American Board of Professional Psychology in both clinical psychology and geropsychology. In addition to his clinical work, he is a founding member of the American Board of Geropsychology, an organization that governs specialty certification for psychologists working with older adults. So let's jump in. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us today. Our listeners have heard your professional credentials. So now let me ask you the question. How do you describe yourself in your work the first time you meet someone? You know, that's something I've given a lot of thought to um, over my time in practice. And what I've settled on doing is to be as informal as possible. The main reasons being that, you know, number one, it does help with rapport building because I'm, I'm usually getting into some very sensitive issues with people that I'm working with. Um, but also because I think there is, uh, there's a stigma associated with mental health. And so many times, uh, you know, if I'm working at a facility, for instance, it isn't that individual that has called me to come see them. Somebody else has called me in. So, in a lot of cases, I'm coming in very cold uh, without a lot of preparation on their part. Um, and so I have to be very conscientious about how I introduce myself to them uh, so that we can develop a good relationship fast. Um, so typically, I will tell them, you know, hi, I'm, I'm Dr. Heck, I'm a psychologist. Uh, and sometimes there's initial reaction to that. Sometimes uh, you know, there's a little bristle or there's uh, a hesitation. Um, but then I follow up very quickly and let them know that, you know, my job here is to, uh, is to look after people's health and happiness. And that leads to a very simple question. Um, are you healthy and happy? And I get a lot of good responses to that question because they can really take it anywhere that they want to. Um, some people are, are bound to say, yep, I'm fine. I still don't know why you're here. Um, but most people will take that prompt and, and they will start talking about something consequential. Wow. So I, I love that so much because, you know, what you, what you initially mentioned was the stigma around mental health, which is one of the things that we're so focused on with, you know, promoting longevity equity. And I like walking in through that door, as you've described, as something that all people, that's so humanizing, right? Something that all people want, health and happiness. And then where they take it is very person-centered on your part. Yes, and, and, and intentionally so. And I know it sounds like a, a simple approach, but that was kind of a hard-won approach after trying many things uh, over the years. Um, but Additionally, I'm very aware of how I'm presenting myself as well. I am more inclined to wear jeans uh, than I am to wear anything else um, because I find that it puts people at ease uh, to be able to present so informally. I watch how people respond to others in white coats, mm -hmm. uh, especially in a healthcare environment. Uh, and I try to, uh, whether it's intentional or not, Kind of play off of the healthcare environment and let them know look i don't work for the facility i work for you i'm an independent practitioner 
So you can tell me anything that you want to tell me, uh, and it's not going to come back and hurt you. Mm -hmm. uh, so anything that I can do, put them at ease, because we're going to talk about some very consequential stuff in most cases. Um, and every bit of my presentation, I, I have thought out. It's not incidental. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds very clear that it's been, like you said, hard won, hard learned over time, right? To be very intentional about that and, um, and building some rapport and disarming and uh, building some affinity with that person uh, is, I think, is key to, to the work that we all do. And I think that those examples that you've just given are, are so Im important. Yeah, so useful. Yeah, oh, I learn something every time I talk to you. So how did you become interested in this field? Well, there, there are a handful of answers uh, to that. Um, and I guess I will ask, you know, if you want to put a finer point on it, uh, in clinical psychology or working with uh, older adults? Well, you know, of course, I want to know both of those things. So let's start with working with older adults. Uh, it was uh, it was a combination of early personal experiences and opportunities throughout training. Um, you know, I'll tell a story that I tell um, not too many people. So I'm glad I get a chance to tell this story to, to you and to your viewers. Um, and I don't recall if I've told you the story and I may have. Um, so I was uh, I was 16 and my grandfather was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Um, this was a small town, Indiana. Resources were scarce. This diagnosis came from his primary care physician in this town of 2,000 people. Um, his sister had gone through Alzheimer's disease the entire course of it. It was devastating. And it was unquestioned you know, what she was going through. The diagnosis was very clear. Uh, and I saw her from time to time, too, with my own eyes. And even now looking back, this was a very accurate diagnosis for her. Um, he got this diagnosis from his doctor. And they came up with this very interesting arrangement. But he would spend Monday through Friday at the nursing home in town and go home on the weekends. And, the, you know, the town didn't have assisted living or home health or anything that nowadays is a little more ubiquitous. Um, Looking back, looking back, there's a lot of questions one could ask. You know, that is, if you can't live Monday through Friday at home, what well, makes people think it's going to work out well on Saturday and Sunday? Okay. So it was a weekend, um, and my, my grandmother was at the sink, and she was just a little wisp of a woman. You know, she was probably 80 pounds soaking wet. She was at the sink doing some work in the kitchen. She heard uh, the screen door slam out back. She knew he had fallen. Um, so she went back uh, to the screen door. He wasn't there. Uh, she looked. He wasn't in the yard anywhere. She looked out in the shed, and uh, he had shot himself in the head because he knew what he was facing. Um, he was a gun aficionado. As soon as he got the diagnosis, my father and my brother went and removed all of the ammunition in the house, but not the guns because that would have had a really devastating impact on him to have his guns removed. Um, and this was culturally normative where I came from. So this was not that unusual, but uh, grandpa had held back one bullet because he knew they were coming. And looking back on this, looking back on this, it was a very formative experience, not just because of the trauma and the impact on the family, but because of what I have learned since then. Um, what I have learned since then in looking at these things is I don't believe he had Alzheimer's at all. I think it was depression. It was depression manifesting as dementia. Uh, at the stage they say he was at, he should not have had the wherewithal to hold back a bullet, hide it, and find it again, operate the gun in a complex way that needs to be operated. Um, and he had many life circumstances that would have lent themselves to depression, and getting that diagnosis was probably, uh, you know, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And he was just waiting for the right opportunity. He planned it out, you know, perfectly. Uh, he, he was able to do this in a way that was minimally disruptive. And, and so I've never actually said that to any of my family members before because they have made peace with how he 
handled his own destiny. Um, again, it was culturally normative in that way. But the clinical lesson is that we, we can do better, especially now. We should have done better then, but the resources weren't there. I don't think the state of the art at that point considered depression as a regular differential diagnosis. Uh, this was a primary care physician who had to handle everything from kids' strep throat to broken bones. And we can't expect primary care physicians to be specialists in everything. So, he, you know, he did the best he could with what he had. So when it happened, it, 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 it started a search for understanding on my part. And uh, I was surprised with what I learned over time. Uh, I've held that with me as a motivation for getting things right and applying as much as of what we know to every single case possible. And we're nowhere near where we want to be in terms of understanding how these things work. But we're closer than we were when I was 16 years old. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there are lots of directions that we could go with with that particular narrative, Andrew. And first, let me say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And also, I admire how you have taken that legacy and turned it into clinical inspiration. Because you're right, we are nowhere near where we need to be in terms of differential diagnosis, but we are so much farther along than we were at that time. And, you know, it reminds me of that wonderful Maya Angelou quote, you know, once you know better, you do better. And, you know, so here you are living that out because of this tragic experience that you had um, at such an early age. And at the same time, you know, a person taking control of their own destiny. And, you know, as a gerontologist, that's autonomous aging right there. And it's all the things all in one. It's tragedy, it's autonomy, it's learning, it's legacy. It's all of that. So as a formative experience, it was, it was, it was powerful. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what, what happened was that that interfaced over time with uh, training opportunities. So entering grad school uh, for clinical psychology, my particular program required us to uh, declare a proficiency area. Um, one of those areas was geropsychology uh, that was available. Um, and perhaps just serendipitously, I got a call from an old college classmate that says, I'm, I'm working for a guy who does uh, nursing homework. Are you interested in picking up some part-time work? And all these things just kind of converged. Um, and before you know it, I'm headed in a particular direction. I'm really enjoying it. I find that I, I have an affinity for it. And, uh, you know, then you start thinking about very practical things like, well, you know, given the population trends, you know, job security will be there. Um, so, you know, everything was really kind of kind of coming together. Now, the uh, the tough part was that there weren't, especially at the time, there weren't a lot of pathways to becoming a geriatric specialist. So I found myself, as do many of my colleagues, having to kind of carve your own way through the forest. Um, we all recognize the need, but getting from A to B had, had been a lot more difficult than it seemed. So I also uh, had developed a special interest in creating training pathways, creating standards for practice, and being involved on that level with the relevant people in the field uh, to help solidify what it might look like for people who are competent in working with this population. Mm -hmm. Yes, and will you say some about, because you've been very active in a leadership role in in that path, and I think that that's an important thing to, to talk about, both at the state level right now and also just the trends that we're seeing uh, well, I would say internationally, but, you know, we could take that as far as we wanted to. Yes, I'd love to, for you to share some. Sure. In 2014, actually it was 2012, um, uh, a group of colleagues and I came together because we all had a board certification in uh, another specialty to start with because the JARO certification did not exist. We came together and initiated the process of creating that. There were six of us. Um, it was done by 2014, and 
as of now, we have certified 100, no, excuse me, 86 geropsychology uh, board certified specialists that are practicing. Um, and, you know, it's hard to have a frame of reference for that, but it's substantial uh, given that we're just a nascent organization. But the relevance of that is that anybody, frankly, can practice with anybody um, if there are no standards. If you've got somebody who is used to working with kids, but then they decide they want to moonlight and work with older adults, if you're qualified to do it, that's wonderful. We need the help. Who ensures people are qualified? What are the standards? Um, and that has driven me and my colleagues and, and uh, others to, uh, to help say, okay, this is the educational background that, that we would expect. This is the, the level of uh, experience we would expect. Um, these are the experiences uh, we would expect for one to declare themselves a specialist in geropsychology. Um, and it's been received very, very well in the field. And it gives us another uh, assurance that we can give uh, clients, patients, families that there's a degree of confidence. It's not about excellence, it's about competence. You know, it's not, it's not a feather in the cap. It's about, do you meet the standards for practice? And it's been successful. And right now I, uh, I'm serving my term as president of the American Board of Geropsychology, which is that organization that, that certifies individuals. Really, really proud to do all of this. Nobody's getting paid for it. You know, this is, this is all uh, contributions on our part, time-wise and, and effort-wise uh, for the good of the field. And we're happy to do it. Well, it's a continuation of that legacy that, you know, you saw this is a need and it's time to do better. And, you know, it's, it's very similar across all the work that people do in gerontology in, in terms of, you know, lack of either, whether that's certification or, you know, kind of a, a stamp of approval in terms of competence, you know, people in the world say, oh, I, you know, I had this experience. And so, you know, therefore, I'm going to hang out my shingle as this type of professional. Um, and I think that's dangerous. Uh, in fact, I think it's unethical practice for people to be um, working in the field with a population that they may know very little about, you know, I call it in of one experience, that they they had an experience with one person. And based on what we know about the heterogeneity of aging, that means pretty much nothing. So um, it, mean, it may mean that you have a good heart and that's marvelous. But without some foundation for competence, I think that's, that's unethical and, and frankly can be can be dangerous. Well, so can you, were you going to say something? Cause I want to hear it all. Oh, <laughs> um, I'm glad you mentioned the heterogeneity issue uh, because that has been, has been a, a, a real uh, wonderful theme in, in my experiences in practice with older adults. Uh, you know, when I was in school, um, I was taught that the older adult population is actually the most heterogeneous population that you can work um, and I, you know, I, I, I was probably skeptical about that. I think I was like, okay, we'll, you know, I'll, I'll see how that pans out, you know, and when I get out there and take a look and it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And that's part of the wonderment of it for me is that, uh, somebody who's 65, it may or may not resemble somebody who is also 95. Uh, somebody from one area may resemble, uh, somebody from that same area or not. You know, the, the axes upon which heterogeneity exists are plentiful, and it keeps things very interesting. Uh, the problem with that is you cannot always generalize what you know to everyone. So you talk about N of one, right? Uh, I have had to have thousands of N of, N of ones <laughs> while trying to apply some principles that seem to hold across all people. And that challenge is really what keeps me stimulated and really interested in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, it certainly does keep the work interesting. And, you know, I, I agree with you. That is, I'm grateful that, you know, things continue to be interesting, um, you know, keeps our own, our own, own mind stimulated. And it sounds like that was also kind of a, a surprise, that realization that you were told that this was the case, but you had to kind of prove it to yourself. Are there other things that in your work that continue to surprise you? Certainly. Um... Certainly. 
both the similarity of problems people experience across the lifespan and the uniqueness of problems that some people experience at different places. Oh, say more, say more. Uh, you know, last week I just did a uh, couples counseling session with uh, a man who was 96 and his 92-year-old wife. And I never envisioned that that was even a thing. But it was two, I think, very conscientious people who were seeking to learn to communicate better. They had been through some transitions. Um, they were struggling with some of the transitions, very committed to one another. They didn't want you know, things to radiate out to their family. So they made an appointment. They made an appointment. They reached out to me and made an appointment. And it was a I, I hate to say this, but it was a delightful experience. I mean, I don't know if the type of therapy should be a delightful experience necessarily, but this was really a wonderful experience for me. Um, you know, they they didn't uh, they didn't conform to any stereotypes that I could have helped. Um, and you know, as you can probably imagine, I see all sorts of willingness to engage or lack thereof in terms of therapy, and I don't think that's unique to age. I think that's across the spectrum, but society hasn't done our current cohort of older adults any favors in terms of, you know, presenting mental health in a positive light. So I get a hesitancy. I, I, I get, uh, I get all sorts of reactions. Um, and, and I think it probably does bias me to a degree and which is why I develop an approach that I do to try to break through an assumed uh, resistance that I'm going to run into. And I'd say it, but most of the cases I, that is true. There is a bit of resistance, but this couple was so wonderful. They were so open, uh, collaborative. Um, I, I couldn't wait to see them again. <laughs> it was a really So in terms of surprise, um, we all have biases. I think the task is to be aware of our biases and pay attention to evidence that refutes them instead of, you know, the confirmation bias tendency that a lot of us fall into. Um, and I have found that when I have been open to uh, contradictory information, I have been very pleasantly surprised. Again, another topic that could take us in so many different directions. And I love how you're, you know, speaking exactly to some of the things that we're so focused on with Longevity Project for Greater Richmond, which is the, you know, this notion that we need a counter narrative because we have a tendency to, when we have a bias, we lean towards that bias. That's just how our brains work. It's safety. It's, you know, it's just how that works. You could explain that much more eloquently than I can. But we need to resist that and question, well, why do I believe this? I believe it just because I swim in this soup of this, you know, dominant narrative, just like everybody else does. But there is another way to think about things. So, okay, but I have to ask you about this couple. So were their marital issues, were they specific 90-year-old marital issues? Or were they marital issues that people of all ages face or was it a mix both, both. both. I, would, I would say um uh, the primary driver seemed to be that one partner's health was worse than another requiring a higher level of care than the other partner actually needed as well um so they were both forced to move into a level of care for the lowest common the not for the lowest denominator which right. was uh she did not need to be in an assisted living environment she she was healthy and vibrant and had her friends in her community he needed to be in an assisted living facility or at least environment and they were at the precipice of making this decision does mm. she continue to live separately to keep her own vibrancy uh, or does she follow him to the assisted living facility so they continue to be together and they had had, they had, had uh, I don't want to say heated, because I don't think they ever got heated, but they had had some contentious discussions about this time. That was the primary driver. Yes. But yes. you know, your bread and butter couples therapy issues, communication, empathy, um, et cetera. Mm. That, that kind of uh, fuel primary driver. 
Mm. Well, so I know that you're also going to be a guest speaker in my psychology of aging class this semester. So I hope that this topic will come up and we'll hear the, you know, the continuation because that is, that's a, you know, a situation that we frequently hear people facing. And um, so I'm grateful that they have you. I'm, I'm grateful that people have somebody that they can um, turn to that is trustworthy in terms of answering those questions. And I'm also partly grateful because then we can use that narrative to train future people. And I also think we don't have enough choices for people. Why should there just be one choice that, well, you, you both move to assisted living or one person moves and one person doesn't? I think our service kind of conglomerate, whatever, I can't call it an industry because it's a whole kind of collection of industries, constellation, right? Our service constellation doesn't match the heterogeneity of our population. And that's a problem, right? That's a problem. So while we're talking about an issue that is about this one particular couple, it's not just about this one particular couple because that's a story that we hear repeatedly. And we don't have the at the macro level, we don't have the options to to really address that. I agree totally. I think this is a bit of a microcosm of, of uh, so much that's happening out there. And this isn't even the only couple that I'm currently seeing with this specific issue. It's just this is the first couple in the 90s that I have discussed this issue. Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, because, you know, people, people don't age at similar rates. People's health... People's health doesn't uh, hold up or decline at similar rates just because you live together or because you're married. Um, there are differential rates of all sorts of things, and that uh, that certainly is going to have a dynamic impact on people. And I've seen people in the couples forum. I see people in the individual forum that says, you know, my wife and I or my husband and I were always talking about this, and I'm feeling resentful. I'm feeling I'm feeling angry. Um, or they aren't able to say those things. They're just like, there's this, this thing between us. And they, you know, and we get to the point where maybe they can say, I'm angry, I'm resentful, et cetera, et cetera. Without getting into the weeds of therapy, uh, it does tend to shine a light on some of these more, unfortunately, universal issues that we're starting to get into. Yes, of course. Well, and I think you've kind of pinpointed one of the things that we're really focusing on is, you know, rejecting that single story that aging is all one thing, that development doesn't exist because we have this narrow view that aging equals decline. And so not only do we have heterogeneity that people are different from each other, but we have this multidimensionality that we have also, I hate to even use the word, I'm not going to use that word, we each have different developmental niches, even within ourselves, right? So physiologically, psychologically, socially, spiritually, right? The story that we tell about ourselves, those could all be at different developmental stages or developmental niches. And so to put those in a mix with other people, wow, that's complicated. And to do that over 90 years, that gets even more complicated. That's some kind of soup there, isn't it, Dr. Heck? <laughs> it really is. And, and uh, I have learned to keep my expectations uh, uh, low in terms, of, um, in terms of my threshold for surprise. Um, I had a, a gentleman in the not too distant past who came to me uh, with a suspicion of early dementia, which unfortunately uh, was confirmed. But he was wondering how much longer he was going to be able to race dirt bikes. I don't care how much schooling you have. You're not going to prepare for that issue. And all you can do is rely on, you know, whatever clinical and academic heuristics you have developed uh, to, to move forward with this. You can say, well, okay, what the research says about early Alzheimer's and driving is that from, from the theorized moment that your modal individual with Alzheimer's disease develops Alzheimer's, there may be three years of safe vehicle operation. 
Now, you know, that's almost a useless number because everybody's so different. But the point there is that people can can drive into their disease process up to a certain point. Does that translate to dirt bikes? I don't know. <laughs> so I have to rely on my own personal knowledge of, say, motorcycles to see, you know, how does that stack up against operating a car? Uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so I don't mean to make light of the issue, except to say that there is a wonderful complexity to the work itself. Um, and balancing that with, with just uh, what I would just say clinical empathy and staying very mission focused is the task of the day. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's, that's hard to find. Because uh, I've been involved, as you know very well, as you have been, uh, we've partnered many times on these things in training uh, in, the various, in various forums. Um, and in my clinical training efforts, uh, I have tried to emphasize that my trainees uh, do a lot of meta thought, you know, and asking the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I making the choice? Why am I choosing the choice that I'm, that I'm making? Uh, so that they can develop a perspective on what they're doing, what niche it fills, what needs to be done, what we can't do yet, so that they can prepare, they can prepare the next generation of folks behind them who are going to build on it. But my experience isn't always so positive. You know, I run into a lot of clinicians who really would just rather not think about why they're doing what they're doing. They're for the sake of just doing it. And I will in a private practice setting, in a private practice setting, when you're short on time, there is a temptation to shut down the introspective piece because you've got a job to do and there's a lot of it to do. Uh, but I know I just kind of tell myself all the time, don't lose that part of yourself. Don't lose that part of yourself. If it costs you a little bit of revenue or, or time or whatever, it's worth it. Anyway. Well, I applaud that. And I'm I'm grateful that you brought it up because I think that there's a lot of, in terms of evidence-based practice, right? We need to be focused on why we're choosing what we're choosing, right? What's leading us to, you know, and that evaluative process of understanding what the evidence tells us, not just this end of one experience, but what the evidence tells us. And then we practice that. And it is called practice, right? For a reason. Everything we're doing is practice, right? So we call it practice for a reason. And then some kind of follow-up reflection to, you know, what worked, what didn't work, how will I do this in the future? And I'm, yes, I know that takes effort and time. And I'm grateful for that effort and time that you take because because it does make the work better. And it also makes it more ethical, right? Because you are, because you're, re- you're reflecting on, you know, whether this is working or not. There's an accountability there. Um, there's definitely accountability there. And one thing that I'd love to see happen in the future is, is stronger partnerships between private sector providers and academia. Um, I think that that is a, it's a bit of a broken connection. Um, I think academia and the public sector have, have done a reasonable job uh, because of commonality of purpose, even commonality of funding in some ways. Um, but uh, it's more difficult logistically, and I can speak now from, from a private provider perspective, uh, the natural channels aren't there to partner with academically based programs. And the reason I feel that that is important is because I am the end user of your work. Mm-hmm. I am standing on the shoulder of giants. I am uh, using the knowledge that you have discovered, that you have taught, that you have refined, um, and, and put it into direct practice from my perspective. That connection uh, isn't as strong as I would like it to be. I don't have great ideas on how to strengthen it, but I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, and I'm not just talking about you know public academia. I'm talking about academia in general, being the uh, the, the, the brain trust uh, that academia is, being the repository 
of, of scientific evidence-based information. Um, a lot of my colleagues in private practice, what I have seen is they get up to a certain point of education and competence, they start practicing, and your time opportunity gets limited for growth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would like to see that barrier broken down. Yes. Well, okay. First, thank you for saying that. Um, I, I appreciate that because I oftentimes feel that disconnect um, because I feel like, you know, okay, this disconnect between, you know, the, the practice setting and the academic setting um, people in the community say, you know, you academics, you're too academic. Well, right. And I think, well, I don't say you community people, you're too community, (laughs) right? I think we can't survive without each other, right? We need that, that, that connection to, to keep the academics honest and applicable and relevant. So we're not just talking to ourselves because what good is that? That's, that doesn't improve anybody's life, in my opinion. Um, so I'm I'm eager for that to happen. So I hope that that can be, you know, conversation two or twenty-seven or you know, however many we're up to uh, at this point. Well, I, I think the way I frame it in my head is is in terms of the continuum of care. Um, I believe academia needs to be on that continuum of care. Um, but there's not a neat conceptualization of that yet about how academia and training fits within a continuum of care. I think it just kind of assumes providers in place, period. Um, I, I think I think that's short sighted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. I'll keep doing what I'm doing then. Still. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and we will follow up with a conversation about you know how to make that happen for folks. Yeah. And I think, you know, you being willing to come and, you know, be a guest speaker in a a graduate class, I think that's part of keeping that conversation going because you can share the real of what, you know, what you're seeing and people can connect it. And there, there are true connections, just like the stories that you've shared, you know, for the couple in therapy and, you know, the, the tragic loss of your grandfather. And, you know, those are things that make people understand why we need to continue to study and explore what it is that we're studying and exploring because there are always you know ways to make things better and I believe that that only happens through partnership right it only happens through shared ideas couldn't agree more and and I think it's generally known that uh, no nobody does a partnership like Dr. Welsh oh, and uh, projects are always not only very exciting but um they're, I think they're focused on real life results and, 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 and bolstered by an excellent vision. So I am delighted to be a part of this podcast as a part of that um, because I like being broad-minded and, you know, I think nobody supports broad-mindedness like you all. Well, thank you very much. You know, and like you said, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants and that's certainly, you know, I hang out with really smart people who know really important stuff. And so we can share ideas together and, and in, from a longevity project standpoint, you know, that's how we can make our communities engaged, livable, stable, and well, and that's what we want to do. Right. And by convening these conversations, I think that's how that happens. It doesn't happen if we sit in our own rooms by ourselves. It's easy to be silent. So easy. It's so easy, right? And it's so dangerous. Can be. Yes. So, okay. So I want to, so on a, a positive side, you know, uh, what do you think has been the greatest improvement in longevity and aging, maybe specific to mental health or maybe just in general over the last few years? You know, I, I see, um, at least from my corner of the world, um, I see it as a constant struggle to reconcile uh, the aging of the body and the aging of the brain. Um, And you might even go as far as say the aging of the mind. Uh, Because right now, in most cases, they're aging at disproportionate rates. You've got the body outliving the mind or you've got the mind outliving the body. And that creates 
what I dare say, some existential problems. Um, where you know you can go all the way back to you know uh, the Cartesian du duality, right? The, the mind-body duality, and uh, when one is on a trajectory, the other is not. That creates tension, and that tension is uh, it produces, I think, angst and anxiety, um, and touches the human condition in very serious ways, uh, and it radiates out not only from the affected individual but to people in their orbit. Uh, so, you know, when dad's mind is, is clear as a bell, but his body is breaking down severely, there is a tension there between those two states. And the converse is true as well, where somebody's body is perfectly healthy, but they develop an Alzheimer's process, which can be expected to last 10, 16, 20 years. Um, their, as long as their body continues to be healthy, they will exist in that state and require a lot of resources uh, and it will radiate out to people in their orbit. Um, so I think we're making progress every day on um, that gap between brain and mind health and body health. Um, because in a perfect world, this might be a little macabre to say, but in a perfect world, wouldn't it be great if everything happened at the same rate and then when everything was done, everything's done. Mm -hmm. I I don't mean to be so glib about that. No, no, no. no. I, and not taken that way, not taken that way at all. But, you know, I think it, it kind of gives some additional voice to, you know, you know, when you follow a, a Baltus's lifespan perspective that says we have multidimensionality of, you know, biological, psychological, social, spiritual, and I would add in biographical because of the narrative stories that we tell about our, ourselves, our lives, right, what we're experiencing, and that becomes even more the case as we get older from a, you know, generative narrative kind of standpoint. Um, <laughs> you know, you can think this is, this is terrific that I have all of these, you know, different ways of being, but we still lean mostly to the single story yes. right we lean mostly to the sing single story which is about physiological decline there is still an enormous um myth in the world that most people will experience cognitive decline as they get older as we get older and that is a myth there's you know that's not scientifically factual that we'll all have cognitive decline but it's still part of that narrative of decline. And so while gerontologists are over here trying to say to people, but there are so many different parts of self, psychological self, social self, but people, you know, so what our, what our science and even what our existential understanding is so far beyond what the dominant I hate to say beyond because that does suggest that it's a continuum. But as an academic, I want people to get on board with what the science says. So, I, yeah, okay. So, but it's so different from what people, what most people believe. And I also think that that's partly our fault, my fault. I, I say our fault as as the academy by not <laughs> having bigger marketing budgets. <laughs> To get information out there more to people, to say there are all kinds of parts of you and isn't that great. But then there's also that double-edged sword to say if you're if you're not aligned. And okay, so how much control do we have over those types of things? Right. I mean, the science that I read says that lifestyle factors play a big role in physiological development as well as cognitive development. Where do you stand on that? Well, um, I, I kinda, I'll kind of back into that answer a little bit. You know, where the state of the art seems to be uh, in terms of geropsychiatric, uh, uh, geropsychological issues, uh, it seems to be trying to stave off um, stave off the onset or progression of dementia. That seems to be where the bulk of science dollars are going. Um, as important as uh, psychological factors, developmental factors, et cetera, are, they're not getting nearly the research support 
than dollars as, as the biological aspect of, of brain functioning. So I think the attempt is, okay, um, let's, uh, let's try to preserve the brain as long as we feel that we can preserve the body. Um, it's a laudable attempt, but are you going to get that done at a pharmaceutical or are you going to get that done at a gym? Um, and that goes back to your, you know, these are, these are lifestyle factors that are, they have to be as equally as impactful as, you know, more disease related, uh, inevitable physiological factors. Um, so I, I, I applaud the efforts of science, but in, in, in some ways, um, I think we do, uh, don't, we, we don't pay enough attention to, uh, the more, shall we say, dynamic risk factors involved in decline and disease. Um, and, and why not? Because I don't know, I, I could get cynical and talk about the, the medical industrial complex, I guess, but, um, Back to your original question, though, I, I think that the progress that we're making is in reducing that gap between the mind and its state versus the body and its state. But I don't know how much success we're going to have if we don't pay enough attention to the non-scientific issues, to the personal choice issues. Um it's such a big question. I wish we had all day to talk. Mm -hmm. Well, there will be a part two to this because, you know, I'm, I'm making notes of all of these things that I want to have a continued conversation about, but that is actually a very hopeful point that you, you know, that you just made. And so I want to kind of think about what the future looks like and, and what do you think your work will look like in the next few years? Well, you know, that's that's a great question, because a big part of my job that I haven't discussed yet today is I do evaluations. Um, I do a lot of cognitive evaluations and, and neuropsychological uh, evaluations. And a lot of those are geared toward picking up the first uh, the first clinical signs of cognitive problems. Um, many times, uh, many times I will provide the first data driven conclusions in terms of somebody's cognitive abilities in their continuum of care. Um, I have a feeling that it's going to shift, you know, as we find more biological markers for dementia that can be maybe detected in a blood sample. Um, you know, there are, there are some protein markers right now that we can look at. They're not specific yet enough to, to make diagnoses based on them, but we're getting more precise. It may be that it becomes obsolete for somebody like me to do paper and pencil testing when all they have to do is do a blood test to see what's going on. Uh, I don't think that's ever really going to happen. I don't want that to happen. I, I, I don't want to be out of a job. But at the same time, um, I think there is a certain acknowledgement um, by the field that imaging other biological evidence doesn't speak to function. And there has to be a functional component to any evaluation. I've seen MRIs, head MRIs of people whose brains are really affected, P pieces and parts missing, but they're functioning at a very high level because of the wonderment that is our brain, uh, because of, uh, of the compensatory strategies that the brain itself undertakes. Uh, so I would hate that we would get this, I guess, what I would call false obsolescence of psychological testing for the sake of looking at only these biological markers and brain scans because it doesn't tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm cautious. I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to gather more information that are going to make our diagnoses better and our treatment plans better without uh, throwing out the baby with the bathroom. So part of my future, my job future, is going to be to continue to, to press the merit of this contribution to the overall plan of care for the individual. And I'll probably have to be more vocal about it, about it as time goes on. Yes. Well, I'm going to be vocal with you about that because, you know, when I think about, you know, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about, you know, a whole person perspective. And within that whole person, it's also about the whole brain. 
And, you know, I know, you know, that I started out my work doing neuropsych assessment with early drug studies with people um, diagnosed at that time with probable Alzheimer's, I think is what we were calling it. But of course, they came in with all different types of dementia, all different types, as I'm sure, you know, is what you see, too. And similarly, their function did not, I would even, I would venture to say their function rarely matched at that time what we saw in their scans. Now, I know, I know things have become much more sophisticated because that was, you know, what, two decades ago. But, you know, the neurologist that I worked with at the time you know, said, this will never, this, this will be expensive and it will never replace what we can do, you know, in a conversation to, you know, to you're in, you're in that camp, aren't you? I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I fear, I fear that that may not be the predominant opinion based on what's cost effective or based on uh, uh, who has the loudest microphone. Yes. Well, we know who has the loudest megaphone. We know because and you already named it. We you know, we know who has the the loudest megaphone. But, you know, I'm comfortable swimming upstream if you are. Yeah. I mean, I think we you know, it is our our ethical duty to um, speak against the dominant narrative if it is not what's best for people. Agreed. And I I will continue to to fight that good fight. I'll be in your canoe. I know you will. I know you will. I've seen you paddle. You're, you're very talented. Uh, so we uh, we have to, uh, I think, keep an eye on all facets, though, of this. And and that leads to a, a trend that I've noticed that will also shape my, my practice to come. And that is the idea of decision-making capacity evaluations. This is becoming more and more uh, uh, recognized by the courts especially, um, they want evidence. They don't want just a from the hip opinion about somebody's decision-making capacity because we are really starting to take people's decision-making autonomy much more seriously uh, socially, which is fantastic. I mean, fantastic. This is starting to really become a thing, legally, ethically, clinically. Um, And I have been engaged in that increasingly over the past five years where I'm getting the calls from the attorneys, I'm getting uh, the court ordered valuations. Um, I'm getting families themselves asking, you know, before we take over, can we please see where this person's at in terms of their ability? And as you can imagine, the findings are all over the place. You know, it could be one that could be a different set of findings, but the fact that the question is being asked is phenomenal. Yes, that is super hopeful, isn't it? So I see, I see the future of my job, including uh, increasing amount of, of that. Um, and I see that as kind of only quasi-clinical. Uh, it's, as, it's as legal as it is, clinical as it is, ethical. Um, so it, it, I personally just find it interesting as well. And, and, you know, it's not focused on diagnostics. It's not focused on, you know, Let's differentially diagnose dementia. It can be because if you're talking about what to expect in the future, you kind of want to know maybe uh, what horse to expect, where they're going to be on this trajectory over time. But that's not the bulk of it. The bulk of it is where where are they right now and what do they need right now? That brings in an interface to another exciting area that you know a lot about, and that's geriatric care management. Um, it is a hot developing field and it is uh the missing piece i feel uh that that hasn't been there over the past however long i've been doing what i've been doing um and now it's on the upswing insurance companies are starting to talk about reimbursing it um you know this this coordination role this care management role that didn't exist before now connects people to services uh that used to be unconnected um I am delighted to be a part of that. 
my partner uh, in, in practice, Courtney Patley, um, and she, she and I are the, the principals at Terra Partners. Um, she is a geriatric care manager in addition to being LCSW. Um, and we have interfaced on more cases to the benefit of the client uh, than I ever thought we would. And it's a tremendous development for the field. So I, I anticipate being more involved with geriatric care managers than I ever have been to. That is terrific. You know, and I love that these are two very hopeful kind of messages about the future of this field, because, you know, oftentimes what we hear is this, you know, doom and gloom message about, you know, again, the decline that is experienced in, with the aging process and, you know, these terrible things that people talk about this, you know, horrible phrase that, you know, I hate silver tsunami and all of that. Oh, you know, rather than this is a blessing to get to grow old and, you know, have so many older people around us. Isn't that wonderful? And then, you know, to think about that there are ways that our our service area is improving to meet the needs that are out there, in addition to embracing the opportunities um, and resources that older adults provide. Okay, so as we wrap up, I want to ask you two final questions off the top. What do you most fear about your own aging? And what are you most hopeful about, about your own aging experience? Mm -hmm. I fear most about my own aging. Um, I, sh I share a fear that a lot of my patients have shared. Um, and that is a fear of potential suffering. Um, when I speak to my patients, because just by the, by the numbers, and every one of my patients would agree, by the numbers, uh, it's not unreasonable to talk about death and dying. You know, as we get older, we grow closer to them. That doesn't define aging, but it's a fact. You know, somebody at somebody at twenty uh, is is statistically less likely to be close to death than somebody who is you know older. So uh, I've had a lot of conversations with my patients about this, and they feel in a very similar way that I do. I don't I don't fear the ultimate uh, the ultimate end of life. I fear suffering that could lead to that, and is there potential suffering in that process that I or my patients, remember, would go through. There's a big question mark there. I don't know if I will or not. Um, and, you know, I think a therapist would take that in a, a number of different directions with me. <laughs> but I think that that unknown, you know, is there suffering in my future that is tied to aging? Um, I don't feel that as a biased question. I, I, I That would be kind of a worst case scenario that I would feel. Mm -hmm. Um, and the other part was, what do I look forward to the most to? Yeah. Um, I have always been, and, and I know you know this very well about me, I have always been a broad-minded student of life. And I now have more, uh, I think, tools to experience life, to take it in and make sense of it, than I did yesterday or the day before. And as I get older, uh, I have a greater appreciation of what happens on the planet, where to put it in my own mind, and what I can do about it. Um, and I really, really love being on that trajectory moving forward. You know, if I feel like I've grown that much in X number of years behind me, where am I going to be in X number of years in front of me? That's a cool concept to me. Yes, that is a really cool concept. I'm so glad that we, you know, that we like to end this conversation with those two questions because, you know, it it enables us to sum up, you know, this beautiful work that you're contributing to our community, which I'm so grateful for. I know so many other people are so grateful for, but then also that you have the um, the ability to think reflectively and apply the things that you're doing professionally into your own experience of longevity and, and aging. And, and I'm always curious how people kind of, you know, pull those things together. So um, I guess in closing, what I'd just like to say is thank you 
keep up the good work. I'm so glad that we're in this gig together and let's continue this conversation. Uh, uh, try and stop, try and stop. Uh, I, I am, and, and, and likewise, I am incredibly grateful for what you do, what you have done, what I know you're going to do, uh, you know, in your, in your advocacy and your activism and your, your general support uh, for, for progress in understanding um, all sorts of aspects of the aging experience. Um, and, you know, I know you and I, on a daily basis, we do different things. We're responsible for different things from one another. But the commonality of purpose I have always found to be really driving. And, and I love knowing that you're out there as, as my treasured resource. So I am really, really happy to, uh, to, to be a part of this. And, and I, hope, I hope all of your interviews uh, uh, yield what you want them to yield. And, and, and I know you will put it together in a way that is uh, informative and actually will probably stand the test of time. This is a great, wonderful project. And I can't wait to see the, uh, the, the outcome myself. Mm, thank you so much. This has been so inspiring. Always. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of What Are You So Effing Afraid Of? A podcast sponsored by the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond, a multi-voice exploration of issues to promote longevity equity, disrupt commonly held myths about aging, and share some best kept secrets emerging from evidence-based gerontology. On behalf of myself, Ann Welliford, and my co-hosts, Alexa Bannertrek and Nico Stankulescu, and the Longevity Project for a Greater Richmond team, thank you. We hope that you will join us again as we continue to disrupt common myths and fears about aging and longevity. So listen along and share with us. What are you so effing afraid of? <laughs>